Hey everyone, Dan here, the other half of the Concessions Podcast. Just wanted to throw a little intro and a thank you here at the top of the Oppenheimer half of the Barbenheimer episode, uh, just to add a little bit more context about uh, how you know we got started with this, what we're looking to achieve, and first and foremost, just yeah, really thanking anyone that's sticking around in any way, shape, or form to uh, give us the time of day. I know there are you know more than enough. Uh, interesting film podcast podcast in general that you can spend your time listening to so if you guys even spent the first hour uh listening to our first episode that's enough of uh, a win for me and jared so uh we both thank you for that um yeah so just a little bit of context um i, I similar to jared's story i met him a few years back when uh, we were working for a company together up in the northwest and uh, I, for people who work within uh, remote work, tech work, you know, the corporate world in general, you know, a lot of our interactions are via Zoom meetings, via screens. Um, it's usually more work-based. And even when you do like, you know, the, the corporate mandated happy hours or get to know each other things, it's still not even close to the same of just naturally uh, interacting with someone in person. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of always figure out like the people that you kind of gel with pretty well, even just through that. And uh, yeah, the first time that we had met in person, um, it became pretty clear. We just started uh, just uh, waxing poetic or waxing sophomoric probably is more the the phrase about uh, the things that we cared about, which, you know, for us too is, you know, film, it's art, it's uh, it's things of that nature. And, that, and I don't know about for, for people listening to this podcast, but like that, that's a great, a lot of my friendships have started through that. of just like talking about the things you're passionate about and getting to learn uh, more about people through, you know, their likes, their dislikes, why they enjoy those things, why they don't enjoy other things. Um, and you can kind of get, uh, deepen a friendship that way pretty, uh, easily, at least in my opinion. Um, and so it, it turned I stopped working at that company. He stopped working at that company too. We, we still kept in touch and we were still going back and forth like, Hey, I watched this. And like, this was interesting for this reason. It's like, Oh, I watched this. This sucked. It's like, Oh, I liked it. But so you suck. Um, and you know, it's kind of going back and forth and, uh, basically having what could amount to unofficial podcast episodes, just uh, talking to each other about uh, film, books, art, anything in general like that. Um, and so eventually it, it got to the point where it's like, hey, you know, we we seem to have good conversations. This would be a great creative outlet of uh, really exploring why we like the things we like and bouncing ideas off each other sort of in real time. So it, it sort of is the impetus for trying to start something. We, we didn't even know what this would start out as. First, it was going to be more like a blog of sorts where we wrote to each other and we we kind of uh, critiqued each other's arguments and things like that. And it turned, and then we would just hop on uh, a Zoom meeting and then just talk about what we wrote. Um, and, and so now it's it's kind of more flipped where we, we're still writing, but now it's kind of more for the purpose of these longer form conversations as you've uh, heard in starting with Barbie. Um, and and I think that's what at least what I'm seeking to do with this, and what I really like about you know the the sort of film content podcast uh, analysis that I like to listen to, read, what have you. Um, basically, it's just like I, I want to be. Uh, 
just add like two people who are, you know, uh, not experts, not, uh, you know, we don't have PhDs in this or anything like that. But it's just like your buddy that uh, spends maybe a little bit too much time consuming film and related content, just kind of giving impassioned bar speeches about why they like something. And, and, you know, if that's uh, all we provide for someone, then I think we've uh, done our job. Um, that that's all I'm looking forward to, and and this for me has helped me like really think concretely about like oh like this this new thing that I watched like why do I like this like what what's what am I picking out about it what does that uh, you know say about me what how can I uh, what are, what are the limitations of the things I like and how can I expand that and learn new things about uh, something I already love, which is what me and Jared do too, is like he'll have, he'll put movies in front of my plate that I maybe wouldn't have chosen. I'll put movies in front of his plate that he wouldn't have chosen. That, that creates a contrast where he's definitely more, uh, he's more of an expert on the craft of filmmaking on, on the, the business of filmmaking on, on what it takes to, to really, that separates the good from the great where my background's more like I'm very much more self-taught in that area um, about the craft of filmmaking. So it's, you know, much, I'm much spottier in that, but uh, my background's more in the humanities. It's more in uh, my degrees are in sociology and history. So those are the things I'm much more interested in. Um, and that's what I'm queuing in on when it comes to the films. I'm much more interested in when they have things to say in that sort of manner, which uh, hopefully uh, if we're doing this right, you see both of our um, not expertise, but particular areas of interest shine and kind of bounce off each other. So that's what we're hoping to do too with this. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my intro to uh, why I'm doing this, why me and Jared are doing this. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you so much for uh, sticking with us even this long, uh, this long at all. Um, and yeah, let's get into the other half of the Barbenheimer episode with Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. So this is the latest from writer-director, a uh, pretty much living legend at this point um, in film-going circles, uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, he wrote this screenplay based on American Prometheus, the, the book that we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. Um, this uh, is kind of the latest in a string of something that really only he does, where he he does this kind of auteur filmmaking on a blockbuster level. And Oppenheimer kind of continues that trend. Uh, the movie stars uh, Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., Alden Ehrenreich, James Darcy, Kenneth Branagh, David Crumholtz, Tom Conti, Josh Hartnett, Alex Wolf. Should I keep going? Florence Pugh, Matthew Modine. Did I even say Matt Damon yet? I don't remember. No, yeah, David Dust- hour. You can keep going. <laughs> David Dustmalkian, Gary Oldman, Dane DeHaan, Josh Peck, Jack Quaid, Benny Safdie, so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> just a gigantic ensemble. Um, really uh, w- one of the only filmmakers who can do that where, you know, these there's like several Academy Award winners who are in like one or two scenes and have like a handful of lines um, and it, it just like creates this tapestry of of character development that like really like having like small characters being viewed with like 
that much gravitas is, uh, you know, just an amazing thing to see. Um, so it concerns kind of the, the life and trials of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the, of the atomic bomb, and um, just a really, really um, hyper-focused character study um, that you is you generally only reserved for biopics. Um, but you know, you could definitely, you definitely see kind of similar scale in kind of some fictional character studies. Um, this movie reminds me a lot of there will be blood in that, um, you've got basically this gigantic sort of society altering thing or event or, um, paradigm shift that gets embodied into a man. Um, there will be blood did that really well. The social network did that really well. Oppenheimer does that really, really well. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, uh, before we get like, you know, deeper into the movie, Dan, what was your, uh, previous relationship with, you know, Christopher Nolan and his movies and I guess Oppenheimer as a subject? Yeah. Well, I am a, uh, card carrying, exhausting uh, film-loving millennial. So Christopher Nolan is a big deal when it comes to at least my development of, you know, breaking from uh, just kind of the movies that you're general that you like generally receive by just being alive and uh, you know the big blockbusters and stuff like that. So then you run into The Dark Knight, and all of a sudden this is a movie that really has something on its mind that's front and center, but it's also you know a palatable blockbuster. So it gets your like the the wheels turn. It's like oh like directors are people who try to say something throughout the course of their films and they have a particular aesthetic style. So basically it's like, you know, it's for people born of a certain area, no era, no one's like baby's first auteur where I would say, um, you know, someone 10 years older than me, that's probably like a Tarantino would be similar. Someone 10 years older than them would probably be like Scorsese. There's like these, you know, monolithic figures that they're kind of, uh, Kubrick your, before Ku, yeah, Kubrick would be another great example of like, the, your first steps into of outside like the dead center of uh, palatable films. Um, so he, he definitely was someone that um, like helped me go further. And I'm not to suggest that it's like, oh, he's like, you know, shallow and I went deeper. Um, he's more just like one of the first steps along the way to, to start exploring bigger things where like, I don't know, you watch Interstellar and you think like, Oh, uh, what this, like, what's on no one's mind? Oh, who's this Tarkovsky guy that no one's talking about? And well, what are these Kubrick references going on there? So it, it kind of, it's, it's like a key to, to start going in your own direction. So like, and I really appreciate, um, uh, Nolan for he, he's such like similar to Scorsese. I think he's such a champion of film as a medium um, for all of, and actually I would say similar to Q, uh, Kubrick for like, there are similar uh, critiques. You could throw up both of them for uh, kind of, they're a little cold. Um, they're kind of more focused on ideas than emotions, which is funny given this movie. Um, mm -hmm. And there, there are certain, like I would say movies like Tenet uh, kind of were, the uh, kind of the zenith, the zenith or the deer, whatever word you want to use of the, the sort of critiques of Nolan. Um, I think Oppenheimer is a great uh, rebuttal to a lot of uh, the critiques I've kind of put in him in general. And it, it's always kind of unfair is when you're th this high, like we were talking about with 
Gerwig where she's entering that stratosphere where it's like no one's one of the few remaining directors that his name alone can get butts and seats. So like, of course, he's going to be an easy target for people like, well, I don't know. This isn't exactly uh, perfect filmmaking or so like, you know, uh, everyone's a critic, uh, including us. That's why this exists, I suppose. Um, but then with Oppenheimer, like history major knew about Oppenheimer um you know learned plenty about Oppenheimer from going to American public schools um I would say after school which is interesting when I started studying or just you know learning things more on my own and studying American history more from different perspectives that's when Oppenheimer and like the nuke or like Hiroshima and Nagasaki became more complicated stories than the one that we're fed that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later down the line of like, well, we did it. It was a terrible thing, but it would save so many other lives. It was like this, you know, this very difficult yet ultimately noble thing that we did um, where just my own, you know, personal uh, studies and history have, have really complicated that and have shown these figures where it's uh, these World War II figures, which I would say, you know, nowadays, Americans and like big World War II figures, like you know your Truman, your Eisenhower's, uh, people like that. They're they're pretty much mythic now. They're not people anymore. They're all, they're borderline, you know, demigods. Um, and this film does a lot to ground them back and complicate them at least. Not not vilify them. Well, maybe Truman a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not vilify them. Not say because they're imperfect, they're canceled or anything like that. But just to to bring them back down from the messianic figures that we learn about in history books and like just bring like get your hands dirty in the muck of just how complicated World War II was. So Jared uh same to you yeah you uh as a slightly you've gotten to film a little bit earlier than me you probably like my the first nolan movie i uh saw was the dark knight um so i feel like you probably got into it a little bit earlier like what what how did yours look the same or different than how i ran to nolan and oppenheimer in general yeah i brought a, a visual aid that listeners <laughs> want to get but uh what this is this is a copy of memento on dvd that oh, cool. uh during my move just now i found it in an old box full of junk and this is this is back in the day when dvds were events and so uh uh the outside it doesn't say memento it says psychiatric report in the matter of an application for the admission of shelby leonard an alleged mentally sick person and you open it up and when you open up open it up there's a little post-it note in here that says that reminds you to watch watch this <laughs> and uh there's like all these like all these like addendums to like his psychiatric evaluation in here um this dvd uh the most noteworthy thing on it that i recall is on the special features side of this dvd if you open it up if you put in basically what amounts to a cheat code like if you put in a series of button presses in the right order the movie will start and play chronologically. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, definitely like, like, you know, you were saying when I first became, a, and I, I did enjoy your choice of words here when you said a card carrying, wink, wink, uh, cinephile. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I saw Memento like shortly after it was released. So I would have been like 13, 14 um when it came out in i think 2000 2001 and um got properly obsessed with it actually for some reason i still have never gone back and seen following 
Um, yeah, same. But but yeah, uh, absolutely adored Memento. Adored Insomnia when it came out. Adored Batman Begins when it came out. Adored The Prestige when it came out. Adored The Dark Knight when it came out. And uh, ever since then, eh, mostly miss, honestly. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Like uh, Christopher Nolan's movies for, for millennials are definitely a huge, huge you know, introduction to like a little bit more like on the serious side of filmmaking because he's, he's always, even in his like earlier movies has had this, this kind of blockbuster sense of scale, uh, even to his in- intimate movies, which Oppenheimer really is a callback to, I think his early work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I would say my favorite, um, kind of personal anecdote around my experience with Christopher Nolan movies is something I mentioned a couple times already is, for whatever reason, he has decided that my birthday is when he releases his movies. <laughs> and I think it started back with, um, I want to say, The Dark Knight. I, I have to go look at release dates going back further than that. But at least since The Dark Knight, he has always released his movies the week of my birthday. Every two or three years on my birthday. Another Chris Nolan movie. And um, growing up, I grew up in a pretty small town. Um, very like agricultural um kind of northern san diego small town and uh i i there was one school district in my town so i was going to school with the same people in high school that i was in kindergarten and so basically like by the time you know high school and then after high school i was friends with literally everyone and everyone and that was working at the local movie theater were people that i had known for you know uh a, 10, 10, 15 years. And, um, so I would, you know, see every movie for free. And, uh, um, my birthday when I turned 21 years old, uh, the Christopher Nolan movie that came out happened to come out exactly on my birthday, July 18th. And, uh, so there wasn't a midnight showing of this movie. Um, but, my friends at the movie theater had one anyway, <laughs> and basically in like it's summertime. So it's like everyone who was away from college was back in town. Mm. And so basically like a bunch of people from like my high school graduating class all like showed up at the movie theater at, you know, 1130 PM uh, to watch the dark night. Oh, that's so cool. And uh, right at midnight at the stroke of midnight, I turned 21 and the whole movie theater, as the movie was starting, sang happy birthday to me. <laughs> and uh, we watched The Dark Knight. It blew my fucking mind. That's um, awesome. And uh, yeah, anyway, that, that was kind of the height of Christopher Nolan's power over me. Haven't liked many of his movies uh, since then. Really just, just absolutely hated Tenet. Liked Dunkirk. Didn't, wasn't in love with it. Did not like Interstellar. Did not like Inception. Did not like The Dark Knight Rises. But uh, goddamn, Oppenheimer is a movie. <laughs> I uh, and, and you know, okay, similar to you, like uh, as far as Oppenheimer himself, uh, very very simplistic understanding of who he was. Always knew him as quote unquote the father of the atomic bomb. Never really knew what that meant. Um, you know, uh, even in, in like with my education around American history and talking about the 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 Second World War honestly kind of like a footnote like the sign like we didn't i I don't recall ever learning too much about the scientists 
um, during World War II. Like the figures that you had mentioned were kind of more of the main characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, never really kind of crossed my desk as far as like independent study I've done in my life until the past few weeks when I wanted to prepare for this conversation and really, you know, absolutely devoured that biography and watched the movie a couple of times. I watched the uh, documentary from 1981 called The Day After Trinity, um, which is on the Criterion channel now. And it's actually streaming for free, even if you're not a Criterion channel member. Um, And, you know, just all sorts of like, you know, YouTube videos and other other articles to read about his life and times. Uh, So now I am... uh, I would say arguably concessions foremost Oppenheimer scholar. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have, uh, you've studied more material than me on it. Um, actually that reminds me when you're talking about that fun, uh, fun little piece of concession trivia is that my grandfather was actually offered to join the Manhattan project and turned it down. Um, he didn't like, he didn't know what it was obviously because it, it was secret and he was told he would be sent to the desert and uh you know away or this uh, they said away from his family and stuff and he just yeah just wasn't feeling it wasn't his thing but uh my grandfather could have been part of the manhattan project would have been he would have been in the movie you would have seen him here yeah he would have been played by i don't know freddie prince jr probably brad pitt given you know just the cat leonardo dicaprio just would have been the background (laughs) playing my grandfather yeah oh man (laughs) Can I just say how good it is to see Josh Hartnett in a movie, <laughs> big movie, playing a pivotal role, crushing it? Oh, I don't man. even remember the last time I had heard, heard a reference to Josh Hartnett, yeah, let alone seen him in anything. Um, he had so much potential in like the early to mid aughts. Mm-hmm. Where has he been? Um I'm sure, I'm sure he's been in things and just not anything as high profile as in his youth. But, um, uh, yeah, no, I'm like looking through, uh, yeah, I'm looking through his, his recent filmography and okay. There's the, I, I do, I have heard of the TV series, Penny Dreadful. That was, that ended in 2016. That's the last, that's the last thing he was in that I've heard of. Yeah, bizarre. 30 Days of Night in 2007. I remember seeing that. Yeah, it looks like in about like the mid-2000s, he kind of stopped being in high-profile things. That makes me wonder, like, usually when that happens, I'm thinking, um, oh, wow, his head just fell, or his name just fell out of my head. The other guy, oh, uh, Edward Norton kind of did the same thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So Josh Hartnett Hart- also also stood up to Harvey Weinstein like at some that, point? I, I almost like maybe not that specifically, but usually when you see a, a weird drop off like that, I'm Brendan like, oh, Grazer. he said something about someone. But, you know, yeah, he must have like he must have, um, you know, shot down the advances of some like sexual predator or something where, you know, pure conjecture. The, the concessions podcast does not endorse this opinion. We're just riffing here. Maybe. Um, please don't come and get us Harvey Weinstein. Um, oh, and he's apparently he's also in the the newest season of Black Mirror. Oh, very cool. I've only seen a couple episodes of Black Mirror. Um, hasn't been great, so I've kind of been not really quick to go on it. Um, oh, but yeah, uh, kind of funny speaking uh, with our our good friend uh, friend of the pod Ben. Um, we were talking about the marketing for films such, such as Barbie, and yeah, uh, Oppenheimer kind of. And I kind of fell victim to it a little bit too, 
which I think took away a little bit from how much I could have enjoyed it the first time. I think I'll enjoy it the second time now that I know I'm getting into where this was, you know, told like, go see it on IMAX. This is a Christopher Nolan movie. Get the biggest screen. This is about the motherfucking nuclear bomb. You're about to get your socks blown off, kids, for this intimate and complicated character drama. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the marketing was misleading? Um, I think it would have been really hard to market it anyway else because of the two, like the two pieces of Nolan or three pieces, Nolan, IMAX, Nuke. Like, how else right. are you going to sell this movie? Um, yeah, there was a bit like after the nuke goes off, which is some of the most stunning sound design and like d uh, creation of tension. I think I've seen since oh. like the opening bits of the Dark Knight. Um, oh yeah, and um, and then you know the nuke goes off. And spoiler alert: the nuke goes off. Sorry for people who haven't read a history book, but um, and then it like shifts to this you know this really intricate um, political character drama. And I kind of got lost for about 20, 30 minutes as I'm uh, getting my footing again, trying to catch up with like, wait, why is Robert Downey Jr. mad at Killian Murphy? What, um, who's this guy's name? Why is yeah. he relevant? Who's backstabbing who all of a sudden? And like, it was all set up in the first part on like on upon reflection, it all makes sense. But when I was kind of in that interim part, when it shifts gears, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. Give me a sec, guys. Yeah, well, I um. I was like about halfway through reading the book the first time I saw the movie and I saw the movie again today after having finished the book. And I definitely had a way stronger grasp on the politics of the second half of the movie. The first time watching it, I was pretty lost as to why, why Strauss, um, why his, why, why his actions around his vendetta, against Oppenheimer really disqualified him for his cabinet post. Like I didn't quite understand why he was being, being grilled about Oppenheimer that hard. And, uh, but yeah, watching it the second time after like completing, you know, a little bit of a uh, little bit of study. Um, definitely. It, it definitely all is there and makes sense and is very well set up by the first half of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that, that Strauss man, he, uh, he, fucked with the wrong physicist <laughs> um man one of the things that i love uh, love the most about this movie is robert downey jr is strauss amazing um yeah man i'm gonna just my heart my heart is just gonna be torn to pieces uh during award season when best supporting actor is is all you know brian gosling versus our dj <laughs> and also, I, I don't know i don't know who i would pick <laughs> yeah for real um it's great to see because I'm sure you've seen some interviews too where they're talking to Robert Downey Jr. about the role and especially the role, you know, coming out of being Iron Man for so long. And you can get this sense that he's like, he's like, it's finally over. I can like go back to like acting again. Well, like this is well, great. Yeah. Well, before Iron Man, he, he was, it wasn't really doing much acting. No. Yeah. He was kind of <laughs> a lot of being drunk and high and getting in trouble. Yeah. Um, but now that all of that is behind him. Like his, his like, you know, rock bottom part of his past. And then his gigantic highs as a superstar in the MCU or now that that's all behind him. And now he's just like this middle-aged dude who's very focused on the craft of acting. My God, he's so good. He's so good. And and you uh, almost forgot about it where it's like years of, it's not like he was act, doing bad acting as uh, Iron Man or Tony Stark. Um, but yeah, this is just such a media role that you're just seeing well, him rise to the occasion. Yeah. Well, and I mean, some of that, um, 
some of that self-importance and that hubris, you know, mm. that that he really perfected as Tony Stark serves him really well in this movie too. Yeah, like yeah. it's not just I'm forgetting these Tony Stark. Like he's he's utilizing some of his Starkisms in this. Um, yeah, one of uh, one of the things that was very clear to me um, watching this movie for the first time, and then uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan have talked about this in interviews. Um, is the the parallels between uh, this movie in Amadeus. Yep. 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 And yep. how, uh, how Strauss is really a, a Salieri figure. <laughs> um, very clear in the movie. Um, but, uh, I wasn't surprised to learn that, uh, Christopher Nolan had specifically, you know, asked his cast to really kind of think about that relationship. And, um, I, I want to tie this into some, to like the previous conversation about like the, the hyper on the IMAX in this movie. Mm, mm-hmm. I have to push back. Like it, it's real. The spectacle in this movie, mm. uh, like in, oh, in IMAX, is it? Did you see it in IMAX? I have not, but like I know what IMAX looks like. I know what you know the film was doing. The next, you know, it's impossible to get to see it in IMAX right now, which I love that. Like, yeah, you'd ha- you would have to go to LA. Probably, yeah, I'd probably have to go. If the not, closest, like, the closest the closest one to you is the City Walk, the AMC Universal City Walk in Hollywood. Yeah, like it's damn near impossible. I think between yeah. now, I was looking at the San Diego subreddit. It's like good. I think even last it's week, not it playing like, in, it's not playing in true IMAX in San Diego. There isn't one. Yeah, I forget where they were saying. Like it's somewhere in San Diego County, but it's not like the city itself. It's like yeah, not till mm. like August eighth, and that was last week. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I saw it today uh at the pacific science center with the actual like you know 1.43 aspect ratio you know six and a half story tall perfect square imax screen where you really have to look hard to see the top you have to like look over up and over the seats in front of you to actually see the <laughs> yeah. bottom of the screen um and uh the first time i saw it was it was just like a regular old movie theater but with a sev- actual reel of 70 millimeter film um, which was which was neat. Um, just kind of romantic, you know, hearing the like t- of the of the actual film during any of the quiet parts of this movie where there there's not many. Um, there's one big one. Neat. Oh yeah, the big one, <laughs> as they call it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I did. I saw it in actual IMAX today. Unfortunately, not. 70 millimeter film IMAX because those are very few and far between. And actually you have the opportunity to see that. It's like a two and a half hour drive up to LA for you or something like that. I'm tempted. Um, you should try like, a, you know, in September when you can. <laughs> um, but yeah, I at least saw, even though it was a digital projection, I did see it with like the actual full on aspect ratio where as Christopher Nolan says, if you're in the right seat, uh, it's like 3d without the glasses. Mm. And yeah. Oh my God, man. The, all of the parts where you see the inside of of Oppenheimer's head and uh, it kind of does the 2001 thing where it just kind of goes like psychedelic and you're just looking at like images, like you're just looking at abstract colors and shapes and movement and, and you know, hearing abs- more abstract sound. Um, holy shit. I mean, it was like, it, it, it felt like being in another person's head. Like it was, it was, it was unreal, the spectacle of it. Um, and it, it reminded me of Amadeus. There's like these wonderful moments where um, the, the world outside of Mozart stops mattering because mm. you're hearing the music inside of him. And uh, the exact same effect is so good in Oppenheimer when you're, you're seeing the, 
the droplets that look like nuclear explosions through his eyes and it's filling up the whole screen or you're seeing just like, you know, atoms bouncing off of each other. You're seeing, you know, the, the world be destroyed in his head. Um, yeah, the spectacle of it actually was remarkable because the first time I saw it, when I, I was, I've, I did, I did feel a little underwhelmed by the Trinity test by like all of the parts that, that were kind of big and spectacular, but man, seeing it, with like an actual IMAX screen, different, different thing, man. I was swept up in the emotion of it. Like very, like just stunned by it. Um, strongly, strongly recommend um, seeking out an actual IMAX screen. And I believe the closest one to you is in, is in LA. Um, Often I have to look that up. Um, I don't know exactly where, um, because I mean, we do have a science center out here, so I'm wondering if they have something. Yeah, the, the, well, the Ruben H. Fleet Science Center uh, in San Diego does have a really neat IMAX screen where it's almost like a dome. Oh, cool. and uh, it it is gigantic, and it um and is uh it does take up like your entire field of vision. I I don't recall if uh if they show feature films there or just IMAX oh, they, documentaries. They do. Like I've when I'm in like Balboa Park and stuff like that, they'll say like, "Oh, now playing it's some, you know, big uh spectacle film." Yeah, I wonder if uh if um I mean it's saying if the it's saying Mission Valley also has IMAX theater. I thought they did. Oh, I mean IMAX as a brand. Oh yeah, you're right. There's plenty of movies that are branded IMAX that aren't actual IMAX theaters. The Ruben H. Fleet is an actual IMAX theater, but I'm wondering if it, um, like, what the actual aspect ratio of the screen is. Mm. Um, Anyways, this is getting a little inside baseball. Um, Yeah, yeah, but okay. Tell tell me, what did you like best about Oppenheimer? Oh man, Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of big scenes that stick out. Obviously, like, I mean it kind of makes you, it's like, what could Nolan do with a horror script when I'm thinking about uh, the scene at the rally afterward, when he like, uh, when you're like in his head, when he's saying, it's like, Oh, like, you know, if only it was Germany or we, you know, the Japanese didn't like it. And you're like seeing his subjective experience. I'm like, this is, I'm getting overwhelmed. I'm like stressed guys. And you see like the burnt Japanese corp or cor- or the victim uh, on the ground that he runs into. It's like, he can do mm. horrifying images. He can put you in that place. And then just like, tear you to shreds um i mean obviously the whole trinity test uh scene was incredible too um and we'll get we'll dig into it a little more um i really liked how he handled like the real figure of oppenheimer and like like the the psychological portrait of him i think was so interesting where it's like you can't it's it's almost impossible to come out and judge oppenheimer anyway where you know that's the most important thing to do with your characters don't judge them um but especially someone who has is such a an interestingly complex character it'd be so hard to not like accidentally come down on one side or the other uh yeah and he he just like he's he he threads that line so carefully because i think like you were saying because you know you've read the source material i think he was so like slavishly devoted to like okay what was this person like? What were the actual yeah. chain of events that happened, regardless of my feelings about them? Yeah, well, Nolan uh, went to incredible lengths to uh, develop the movie's subjectivity from Oppenheimer's perspective. And, you know, Oppenheimer judges himself, I guess, plenty in the second half of the movie, um, especially coming from, like, the first half, him being such a, like, a 
kind of blustery, self-important, hugely charismatic, like big personality, like kind of watching the come down from that is really neat. Like when you, but when it is from his perspective. Man, like part of me feels bad for Strauss though. Like, like they, he, he was given like a pretty, he was given a pretty like fair shot, like it being a well, well, like a very well-rounded character. Um, Oppenheimer is kind of like a, just kind of a dick to him, like from the beginning, even before Strauss has, has done anything bad to him. Like I love the line, like a couple lines in their first exchange really stick out to me. I love when he's like, uh, he asks him if he's trained in physics and, uh, he says, he says, no, I'm not really trained in anything. I was, you know, just a, a shoe, shoe salesman. And, uh, and Oppenheimer is like, wow, the, like the, like the great Louis Strauss was once a lowly shoe salesman. He says, no, just a shoe salesman. <laughs> like, oh my God, man. Like, like, and then he's like, he's like, he says that he's a self-made man. And Oppenheimer's like, oh yeah, it's because I can relate to that. And yeah, my father was one. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh dude, like what a little bitch. Like, it's just, yeah, it's just like, those no small things for hated him. In Oppenheimer's mind, like I'm sure those were actually like kindnesses or like genuine relations. I don't think like he even thought that that would be something that would worm into someone's psyche at all. Right. Um, which I think that's that's like one of the bigger themes, which is actually I'm going to tie this to Nolan, the filmmaker, too, or I'm sure no one's aware of this. He's a very thoughtful filmmaker where th this is a running theme through a lot of his films. And this is definitely where it shines most because it's a real life figure where i'm kind of calling it the difference between you know uh theory and or abstract theory and applied science where you like in a lot of films by no one he's very interested in big ideas and how they influence the world and and in where they come from and the men that create these ideas and and the worlds that they can think up of in their minds and like and inception i guess is like you know one of the most literal versions of that but this movie looks at it and it's like, he's kind of like, not that, I don't know, not that Nolan like really looks at his own fans, but he's kind of like telling the Nolan fanboys of like, you kind of don't want to be like that, guys. Like, there, there's something about like getting lost in the clouds, getting lost in your own lofty ideas where you forget that like you live on the, like you're in the world and like the shit that you're doing has consequences, no matter how beautiful or romantic it looks in your mind. Like it might not look that way to other people. And it really just might not be, you might just be a really smart person who is like a terrible member of the community as well. Ooh, I wonder if Christopher Nolan thinks that of himself. I mean, I, it definitely feels like it's something he wrestles with or is something that and you've, you especially feel it in his last couple of films where I think he, <laughs> I think he's aware of his critiques and like, I think he's worked like, this is definitely a, like a quote unquote, like breakthrough in that. Um, and yeah. and, I, and I, I see, and see if you have any other main buckets that we could follow it. And I, I saw three main like fields of study, I suppose that he was looking at. And one is science, you know, obviously one is politics, obviously. And then the third one is just ethics in general. Um, where and how they apply to science and politics yeah and, and how the three intermingle together and how that like has consequences on the people around you where no matter like i've been harping already is like no matter how beautiful and well thought out your ideas are like it they can be destructive where you know i think about his um okay like i'm, I'm a social major so i've read a lot of marx i've read a lot of the people around him so a lot of the people that he's um 
quoting when he's, you know, he's involved in some of the Communist Party and he's giving uh, money to or he's giving money to fight Franco and stuff like that. That ends up, you know, really biting him in the ass in the uh, in the back end. Um, he's kind of misquoting a lot of them when he like kind of where where I think there was a quote where Florence Pugh's character says something or says something along like, oh, have you read like Marx? Like, yeah, I've read Capital One, Two, Three. Where those three books, each one is like 1500 pages so for him to and dense so for him to read all three that that means he's like he's done the the studying he knows he read them in the original german yeah 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 but like just because you've read all the books doesn't mean you know how to apply them or know how to use them in the real world and i think florence Pugh was her character was quite apt in saying something along the lines of like it's not so much about the literal things that were written down on the ground it's about how they're being used today um, and I just don't think Oppenheimer's a man, at least from this film, that can understand that. No, it's uh, it's kind of that age-old adage of knowledge versus wisdom, and uh, right, yeah, it, it's yeah, and I mean, it's so it's so common, and it's also very Mozart again, yeah. where <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like where it's like, oh wow, like this is like a un like almost inhumanly brilliant mind who is still also a child a uh yeah like a literally like a silver spoon trust fund man baby (laughs) like yeah and uh but the thing is with people who are that brilliant and you know i'm sure you've met people like this in your life too where because their their mind is just so for lack of a better word powerful or or intricate like they can convince themselves of anything even the dumbest shit on the planet yeah i think someone that you and i have both met uh someone who has like a lot of uh mental horsepower but is uh one of the dumbest people i've ever known and uh you share a name with this person but that's all i'll say about that (laughs) um (laughs) a lot of processing power and uh uh almost no uh almost no gpu um but yeah uh, and it goes into like you know you can read every I don't know, you could study ethics from end to end from, you know, Plato to contemporary authors. That doesn't mean you're going to be a good person that like that doesn't do shit for how you're going to act in the world. And, and, you know, and, and now apply it to science and, you know, you, you, it's a classic, like even sci-fi tale, like, Oh, has science gone too far just because we can, doesn't mean we should. And this film I think is a little more complicated than that, but it's like that, that's, no, because you even see Oppenheimer wrestle with that, um, especially, you know, if he's, if not a communist, at least a left-leaning, not, you know, pro-capitalist America kind of guy, yet he's building the bomb to win the war. Uh, well, I think that he, and this is, I mean, this is in the movie, certainly, but it's uh, far more fleshed out in the biography, is that his mentorship with 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 Niels Bohr played by mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh in the movie had like a pretty huge impact on the way that he thought about kind of the ethics of building the bomb like him and Bohr like had like just poured over like all of the possible outcomes and both of them were the the gamble of building the thing and being associated with it for Oppenheimer really boiled down to like his very very well thought out um, conclusion that the bomb was way more likely to put an end to war as we, we know it 
rather than perpetuating war anymore. Well, that and, and that's there's a naivete to that. Like it's almost well, yeah. I mean, and you hear him say that in the so. film over and over, where it's like, oh, we'll make the bomb. And then we're going to agree with the Russians that we're going to stop and nothing like we're, it's going to be all over. And everyone like Kumbaya, amen, game like it's done. And like, I guess, you know, we're watching in 2023. So, of course, we can you're gonna say that's naive. But like, well, has there been another world war? Well, no, we haven't dropped another nuke, but we did. have. So a we whole- don't know yet. We don't know if it's naive or not yet. <laughs> I mean, we've had. I, mean, a I think we can assume we can assume that it will be, but yeah. so far, so far, Oppenheimer's been right. Well, I guess right in the sense that we haven't had nuclear war, but very wrong in the sense that we have had war. We've had plenty of human catastrophes between uh, the forties well, yeah. and now. Sure, um, that could be but, directly attested to the fact that we had two nuclear powers that like just can't fire off, so that like that political turmoil has to, you know, that energy has to spew out somewhere else. Mm. That energy. (laughs) I like that. Um, But Um, it's like, and it's not, and that's the thing that's so fascinating about the character. And I'm sure you, you know, you've read the book so you can, you can get into his head a little more. Um, Is that like, he sees all the pieces, but he's like interesting. And we all have, we all have this. Um, he's interestingly blind to other pieces, and that's our own subjectivity, yeah. which I think it's brilliant to put this film as subjectivity because it's showing how even the most gifted among us like just can't see all angles. It's impossible. Yeah, you you pointed out to me really, really smartly um, when we were chatting before about how um, how genius it is to really not show any of the uh mm. any of the catastrophe in in japan um from the bombs being being dropped in hiroshima and nagasaki um and how yeah like like oppenheimer is like willfully putting that out of his mind and what we're seeing is just from his perspective and uh you know it was a big part of the way that he you know has you know is grappling with the fact that he you know contributed to this is that you know he, he didn't have to see it he didn't have to be the one to push the button um, and yeah, I thought, I mean, I thought it was pretty genius that the movie commits to that subjectivity to that extent. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's like, it's kind of funny where now I'm, that's making me think it's like, it's an interesting dark mirror to put, uh, uh, the, the scene with Harry Truman with the incomparable chameleon Gary Oldman. Oh, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> the, the Gary Oldman allied leader cinematic universe continues with Oppenheimer. Um, one, I'm glad that Nolan committed to the bit of being like, yeah, Truman was kind of a dickhead, guys. Like, let's not deify the guy. Um, but it, Truman was kind of this dark mirror of like probably what Oppenheimer was worried he kind of seemed like, um, which in a way he's right in thinking that the two are more tied than he pro his ego could probably handle to understand. Yeah. 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 Certainly. And, uh, the difference is that Truman is just, uh, more than willing to take all of the credit for, yeah, he's going to celebrate it for the darkness. Oh yeah. He's just, just owns it. (laughs) Uh, Don't let this cry baby back in here. Oh man, Gary Oldman must have had so much fun with that role. <laughs> well, well the, here's the here's the thing that that him and Nolan must have had a lot of fun with is that Truman was constantly embellishing his interactions with Oppenheimer. Like if you 
if you think if you look at what he said about that meeting immediately after he kept adding more and more like you know snappy remarks that he the fish made. got bigger and bigger and bigger it got big yeah exactly and so like the very last thing is the last thing is like He's like, oh yeah, I got handed him my my handkerchief and called him a crybaby, but he didn't like <laughs> say that he said that until like years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the version that's in the movie is like the most kind of overcooked version that lived in Truman's head. That's great. That's so wonderful. Like, oh man, that that's that one scene is from is from Truman's subjective perspective that's and like that's even more loaded. That's not even like it's not looking for historical accuracy. It's looking for what Truman thought like wanted it to look like which says even yeah. more about the guy yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but what may we all be so lucky that someone was able to someone sets down as history our like shower thoughts from a year later like <laughs> oh i could have said this to oppenheimer yeah. i should have well <laughs> yeah when i write my memoir it's just gonna be all my clever zingers i that i should have yeah. gotten people and i'm gonna put them in as if they're historical fact yeah the biographer is like talk some good shit about how Truman would do that. And like, um, they pointed out some other, like some other examples of him, like exaggerating how like, you know, quick witted he was, <laughs> which is, which is funny because like, like of the like hundred people they interview about Oppie, every single one of them is like, he was remarkably quick witted and literally had everyone eating out of the palm of his hand within like 30 mm-hmm. seconds of meeting him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just, just the converse with Truman is really funny. How about and this is you know a, a, a criticism that I think is rightfully thrown at some of Nolan's work, which I think this is another like uh, not correction, but it's a step in the right direction. Where uh, the the women I think are written much more powerfully in this film than um, in previous films. Well, uh, yeah, in sharp contrast to Barbie, this is not a film. No, no representation. No, not um, you this know is the guys being dudes. This is I. This is almost like this is ninety nine point nine nine percent white dudes being white dudes. This is the Ken Dunn um, boys. There, I, I didn't notice the first time, but there is a black man in this movie. Very briefly, doesn't have any lines, doesn't have a character name or anything like that. But uh, th- there, there is a black man who appears in this movie. Oh and, yeah, he's uh, like in the I, background I, at Manhattan. I did literally did not did not catch it the first time <laughs> um, that that there is a you know a person who isn't white in this movie. Um, you know, there's that like passing. There's like a glancing blow about the the woman who was involved in the Manhattan Project, who's played by Olivia Thurby. Mm-hmm. Um, who, uh, by the way, I just got to throw this out there. Wonderful um, reunion with Josh Peck, who the two of them were in this movie called The Wackness together in like oh, 2005. Wow. That I loved. <laughs> we should watch The Wackness on the pod. Hey, make me um, do it. We will, yeah. Um, but anyway, like it's funny. There's like this, this glancing blow of like her being there and like being like her like like being like they asked me if I knew how to type. And he doesn't even look at her. He just turns around and he's like, put her on, you know, this important thing. Like, doesn't, doesn't um, say it to her. Yeah, well, I guess, and, and that's very fair to say, where, you know, this isn't a movie. This is a movie about the boys, about what happens when you let Ken's rule the world for long enough. Yeah, uh, it really is. But, like, the, you could, and, and you know, there, there was, of course, it's going to be mostly about guys. There's not going to be nearly as much lines for women in a story about guys being dudes. But the line, like even in other stories, are about guys being dudes. Let's think about like the Dark Knight or Tenet or things like that. 
um, the women are still like really one dimensional and like kind of flat. Where like I think Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh did an excellent job with a pretty well written script for them. Yeah, well, and, and Nolan, you know, this is a kind of another thing that's been memed with Christopher Nolan is that virtually all of his movies have a dead love interest. Yeah, <laughs> and Oppenheimer is the latest, <laughs> latest and greatest. Uh, <laughs> the love interest in this one is even deader, and we see her die in a number of ways in this movie. <laughs> um, and that's actually another thing. Uh, I, I don't know if she committed suicide. I'm glad that the movie kind of like had it both ways where she gets murdered and she committed suicide. Oh yeah. I guess one. I walked out but, of that uh, thinking it was definitely suicide. Well, but you, you see someone murdering her also in the movie, um, which history do, is uh, definitely uh, ambiguous there. Huh. There's like a lot of evidence that she was murdered um, because of her political leanings yeah, and her association her. with Oppenheimer. Right. Um, and so when he imagines it, that's what he imagines in the movie. You see like some yellow, like dark gloves, you know, put I think because he, he needs to be briefly. murdered, not suicide. But, like that's but, better yeah. for his little soul. But but yeah, I mean, Christopher Nolan has long been making movies about men dealing with their dead wives. Um, so and he's gonna uh, make a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, dead mothers. Him, <laughs> him and Greg Gerwig can collaborate, and it'll be about dead mothers. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, I would say like the women in this get more to chew on by and large. Like Emily Blunt is just kick kick ass in this movie. Oh man, they kind of they kind of you kind of like does a little bit of like a gotcha where it's like they really just dwell on how she was like a bad mother and adulteress and a alcoholic fuck up for like nine tenths of the movie. First off, then, those are the most colicky kids in all of cinema. Like every time they're uh, off the screen. They're realistic. Um <laughs> well that's a that's but, a good but, uh, yeah, reminder she, then she, for me who doesn't have kids. But when she comes out and she just absolutely just like owns the prosecutor guy who uh by the way is played like absolutely brilliantly like uh that that guy he was like what he was in like one of the terminators he was in uh the planet of the ape one of the planet of the apes movies he was in uh pet cemetery his name's um, jason clark uh I've, I've never thought all that much of him as an actor but man he's good in this movie in he, fact, I can say that so, with a few. Like, ugh, just like, oh, fuck that guy. Like the moment he started asking questions, like, bleh. And I could say that with a few about a few people in this movie. Like Dane DeHaan, I've never been really impressed with, mm. but he's he, he's awesome in this movie. Uh Alden Ehrenreich, I've always known is pretty good. I think he's just kind of like still trying to claw his way out from the stigma around this Han Solo movie. Mm. Um, but he's fantastic in this movie. Benny Safdie. Oh, um, right. And how can I say how can I say this like and not get in trouble? He was so good in oh. good good time, right? That I still have quite a bit of trouble seeing him and not thinking that he's like a, a special needs person, a little neurodivergent, yeah, or a lot, yeah. So like, in the, even in this movie, I was like, oh, he kind of still seems like he's like a special needs kid, but he's still great. He's so good in this movie. He was just too damn good in good time. <laughs> um, I mean, Kenneth Branagh, like obviously like yeah. one, one of, one of the finest actors in like a classical sense. And how, yeah. You've got, you know, the number of directors we have you probably count on one hand that can get someone like Kenneth Branagh to show up. It's like, yeah, you're just going to be here for like five minutes, say a few lines and then go away. Yeah. Yeah, one of one of the uh, one of the lesser scars guards shows up for a while in this movie. 
Um, who else? Who else is? Oh, David Crumholtz as uh, Isidore Robbie, the best friend. Mm. Um, he's in like some heavy like prosthetics, I think. Unless he like gained a ton of weight for this movie, but I don't think he did. I think I've seen him recently, and he doesn't look mm. like that. Um, he's good. Casey Affleck. Oh, great for like as far as like just like economy of like just the ratio of how much impact versus screen time. Terrifying like they, from the get go. Well, and just the way it's edited and like the way that Groves is talking about his past and mm-hmm. how, how we, you know, went, went back to Russia to fight the commies. Uh, and then just like, yeah, Casey Affleck's baggage. Like he's kind of a creepy person in real life and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, and a remarkable actor. So just this, like, just the way he's like, he plays it, he plays it like he's not scary. Right. He like, he like, um, He's kind of vindictive and kind of like sly, but you don't get the you wouldn't get the impression from just watching him that he is this like really, really, really scary guy. But like with just all the elements kind of coming together, with I mean, it's sort of an interesting editing and everything. It's like contrast, not contrast, but I guess supplement to Strauss and Robert Downey Jr.'s playing of him. But they yeah. kind of seem like two yeah. peas in a pod and like a very gross, rotten. Peapod. <laughs> Peapod. Um, yeah, Robert Down. I mean, okay, I, I would be... We haven't talked about him nearly enough yet. I would be fairly surprised if another performance comes along that actually can compete with Killian Murphy for, for best lead actor when the Oscars come around next year. Like, he, like his performance is, uh, is, is, is gargantuan. Yeah, it's almost like we're not talking about it because it's almost such a given. It's like, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's almost like we yeah. didn't mention Margot Robbie off the bat from Barbie because like, right, everyone right. knows. Yeah, yeah. Kelly K- 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 Murphy in this movie is, uh, he, he is four-dimensional and then some, like, just, <laughs> uh, just like, just, he just like was able to capture like every angle of this man uh so believably and so fully and like just like everything like his, his voice is mm. so very different from his real voice and uh he, he's kind of doing a little bit of that like john ford orson wells daniel plainview thing yeah a little yeah, bit yeah. a little the orson bit Welles thing is uh yeah it's a good uh call out but um the uh the thing that i think this movie does extremely well and also one, my one of my biggest critiques of it i'll follow up on in the same vein is uh this is very much like a like a classical character study or biopic where you've got this one central figure and that performance is extra theatrical, extra um, extra just big, extra bold, um, and all of the performances around it do exist to support that. So like you've got everyone else like being really committed to just like playing it really naturally. And then you've got Killian Murphy, who's playing it larger than life, who's playing it, you know, more theatrically, which I love. Like you see the same thing in There Will Be Blood. You see the same thing with Social Network, any number of, of biopics and, and also fictional character studies. Um, but this movie falls into some hilarious, like unintentionally hilarious trappings of a biopic. <laughs> like that? I rolled my eyes several times. The one that, that everyone keeps mm. talking about is the sex scene. I was about where, to say, I already know where you're going. <laughs> yeah, where, where, you know, where the, the hot naked lady encourages him to say his catchphrase out loud <laughs> while they're boning. 
like it's such like a like that's such a biopic. Wait, there's thing. no way you you read the book, right? Like my the only explanation that I can is think, like that, that is had the, to have actually happened. Nah, no, <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, it might have. Like he he obviously d- didn't ever like reveal like the the most intimate details of his relationship with Tatlock, but yeah. um oh because like that's how I justified it away. It's like you know sometimes like reality is cliche and like a little eye rolly and maybe that actually yeah. happened and so you know uh, Nolan no put it in. No that's a, that's an in. invention of Christopher Nolan as far as I can tell. Um the other part is when he and uh his brother Frank and their colleague Ernest Lawrence played by Josh Hartnett they they take him out to Los Alamos mm. for the first time just like out you know horseback riding camping in their ranch out in New Mexico and uh they're all looking up at the stars and Oppie says something like oh, I love science I love physics and I love New Mexico only there was a way I could combine them <laughs> and uh little Josh did Hartnett, he know and Josh Hartnett is like smiling like he's in on the joke and it's like cute and like they smash cut to like you know, the, the next montage that's leading up to the Manhattan Project. It's like, <laughs> oh, that is so precious. And it totally took me out for such a, a movie that is so nuanced and also so just monumental. Just the fact that it's still like feels a little bit like walk hard. The Dewey Cox story is like <laughs> so like delightful to me. And that that is like my biggest criticism is like. It, it does like fall into those biopic trappings and it, 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 you know, it reveals itself to be just a movie. Yeah. When that, it does that is that. totally fair. Yeah. Now, now that you're putting it in that way, um, that was the thing I was feeling at the beginning of the film too. Cause it like, it's covering so much ground in a hurry and it knows that like, it has to get to the, it has to give you all the, the, the groundwork to understand before the nuke goes off. And then when the nuke goes off, then it like, it need it's going to shift gears to like the character study that it really wants to get into. I felt at the beginning, the editing was really quick and you felt like you were really moving and it wasn't necessarily over expository, which is funny because no one's also critiqued for that, but it's just like, you're just like, bam, bam, you're over here. You're over here. We're having this important conversation and this yeah. very important conversation. Now we're flashing over here and I'm like, whoa, hey yeah. guys, hold on. Well, yeah, I, I see that. I, I enjoyed that about the movie, like that, that Sorkinism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sorkinism. That's almost a good way of putting it. Um, I actually do, do enjoy that. Um, and also to the movie's credit, uh, they didn't go full biopic where they like they actually just they started on like the the book spends like a hundred pages like of Oppenheimer's parents then through his like their immigration. Oh America, yeah, we didn't need that. Yeah, that's classic birth, biopic. <laughs> yeah, his upbringing, his schooling, like when he starts, like he's at the very beginning of the movie, like he's already like he's, he's already, Oppenheimer. Yeah, he's already like you know working on his phd yeah we didn't need the um, story yeah yeah so I, I to this movie's credit like they they start it at the right spot and yeah. they end it at the right spot like you know we didn't need to see him dying of cancer um but <laughs> oh yeah just throwing out like one of my favorite lines actually and i didn't pick this up the first time i watched it but when you're first being introduced to like the prosecutor guys and they're like, they're like, why'd you leave America? And he's like, he's like, well, you know, qu- like you know, quantum mechanics, like, 
was was happening in Europe, not in America. And the guy's like, doesn't Berkeley have like one of the oh, best yeah, like yeah. physics programs in the country? And Oppenheimer's like, yeah, after I created it. <laughs> and then you see the guy just kind of smile, like you see Oppenheimer win him over a little bit with that. Yeah, yeah. It's just like that good. that perfect combo of like charm and like underneath it a lot of hubris. That yeah, like, just just intense hubris. <laughs> um. Yeah, we're 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 running a little long here. Yeah, where yeah. where does this movie for you rank rank in Christopher Nolan's oeuvre? Um, it's I think I mean you know it's early. I only watched it about a week ago, so it's still pretty fresh in my mind. I'm it's at least going to be on the upper half, probably the upper third. Um, I don't I mean I don't think it's going to land like Dark Knight's probably still going to be one, two, and three for me. Um, but it's going to I think it's definitely going to be on the higher end, probably a good uh. B plus to maybe a, a perfect 90% A minus on the nose among his films. Um, what's that still even being said? Like I said, at the top of this, uh, the Nolan discussion where it's like, even a bad Nolan movie is still just excellently crafted and, and, and worth the watch. So like, even if I said like, Oh, this is an F tier Nolan, it's still better than most things coming out these days. Nice for, for me, uh, the prestige continues to be my favorite Christopher Nolan mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm uh just absolutely love that film everything about it um for me oppenheimer is kind of wrestling for the number two spot with dark knight and memento like there's like this three-way tie for number two between memento the dark knight and oppenheimer yeah yeah and then uh after that it's just like everything else yeah it's um, got, i still got a little bit of love for interstellar like it it completely falls on its face towards the end but my god the spectacle. Like, oh, I, I just can't not be impressed with what, like yeah. what was put on screen. Man, Christopher Nolan is really making this career out of like putting physics concepts on screen. Oh, isn't yeah. He? Yeah. Well, wow, like, like massively. Well, and that's what I was getting at with uh, the, the abstract theory and applied science where it's like the most annoying, like Rick and Morty science, like, Oh, I fucking love science types. People love Nolan movies and they like they just don't get like the the ethics of science or the sociology of science or the philosophy of science like yeah i think it's like just this really cool high-tech sci-fi thing that exists in this bubble where it's like completely devoid of humanity um yeah. and oh. the very worst of Nolan, i think can be interpreted to be uh indulged that way yeah, and actually, that you bring up a good point. And one of the the ways that this movie failed Oppenheimer himself is uh, we didn't get just how much a student of the humanities Oppenheimer was. Yeah, you get it. Like, some he, like he knew some philosophy. He knew some politics, or he knew some uh, yeah, theory. Yeah, but like, man, like he really was like a. a he saw him reading T.S. Eliot. Yeah, yeah, but he—I mean, he was quick. quite, quite the poet, and or at least you know, student of poetry and, and history, and not music. Uh, interestingly, not not didn't care for music much at all, um, <laughs> but uh, definitely like um, very well rounded, hmm. you know, as far as the sciences and the humanities go. Um, and they didn't touch on it nearly enough in the movie, I thought, um, which. Uh, Maybe maybe they just didn't speak about it out loud. We definitely saw him pondering over art. We definitely obviously got to know like his interest in 
like, you know, uh, learning and reading in other languages and, mm. and all that mm. good stuff. But I don't think the movie covered it enough for my, in my opinion, just like maybe I'm just comparing it to the biography that really dives deep into how that made him an exceptional person. And like the salesman of science is what they call him like yeah. in the movie and in, and in the, the biography. Um, but yeah, the movie didn't touch on that en- yeah, enough. That's for interesting. We're like, uh, <laughs> you got, we got a three hour movie and you're like, man, we could have just done some more. I'd watch a three and a half hour cut of this. For yeah, sure. yeah. Like, we're gonna we're gonna shift back gears back to Barbenheimer, where both of them I could have spent yeah at least another half hour to an hour in the worlds that were created. So uh, we have not revealed uh, as a result to the Barbenheimer circuit the cultural event. Um, Jared, where do you land? Who wins? Oh, we oh we must declare a winner, right? <laughs> um, like these movies are competing with each other. Um, this is not a both and. This is a winner take all. Whoever loses has to give all of their box office uh, revenue to the winner. <laughs> Again, they're they're like the reason that this is such an event is that because they're so different. They scratch such different itches. I mean, uh, this is this is going to boil down all the way to just personal taste. And for me, it, it's clearly Oppenheimer. Um, Barbie to me still seems like such a, a trifle, like in in its uh, its its message and its delivery of it. Like it, it does seem like like to its credit, it it is a movie that's for for everyone. Like like it this is for like children to like it, it does a remarkable job of taking really 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 complex problems and questions and giving you a pri- an easy to digest primer on it and but to me as an adult i can see like how ham-fisted it is and i can see how surface level it is how shallow it is even if i agree with all of its suppositions the way that it, it gives it to you is in a is a really 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 neat package that is meant for everyone and for me, that's just not as ambitious as something like Oppenheimer that is just like uh, absolutely like, you know, just crushing. Huh, that's my take. Huh. No, that's wow. You are. You're, you almost swayed me there a little bit. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And I was like thinking about like the, the two and what they do well. And I'm going back to the metaphor of like a very, very well constructed pop song um, where like Oppenheimer is more like. You know, I, I don't know, like some of the best an opera an, an opera um, where I was thinking, no, it's more like, you know, like a, a Wilco album or like a Radiohead album or something like that, where it's like it's got some broad, it's got decent broad appeal. But there's definitely like a particular subset of people that's really going to fucking land for. And there's, some, you know, there's some good radio friendly hits on there as well to get people in there. Where, yeah, like, you know, Barbie is more like just one of the best pop records to come out in the last decade or so. I'm trying to think of one like, I don't know, like Charlie XCX or uh, Billie Eilish or something like that, where it's still it's managing to have its like keep the two uh, plates spinning of accessibility, yet very difficult subjects to to talk about and express. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And the question is just like, which one? And like you said, just coming down to personal taste. And right now, for me, it's landed on Barbie. Um. Because I think it, it almost in for the reason why you prefer Oppenheimer or why Barbie, like why you love, you really like Barbie, but it ultimately doesn't uh, 
supersede Oppenheimer is why I'm so impressed with Barbie because it had to uh, appeal to the Mattel or overlords. It had to hit the four quadrants. It had to talk about uh, existential angst and death. It talked about, you know, living under patriarchy, gender identity, self-actualization, and had to explain it in a way that not only can connect with people our age, but then can connect with people who are, you know, six or 14 or 20 or like it kind of even or 18 or 18. Yeah. Where this or is, 80 or yeah. And it, it, that to me is like on paper, that's impossible. Like you yeah. can't do that. And so to see that happen, it's, it's a miracle of a film where, and I think I was telling you uh, a few weeks ago on an episode that we might release, who knows? We'll see. Ooh, the backlog. Um, like singing in the rain is a miracle of a film. Um, I just like, mm. like something like that almost can't happen again. And I wonder if something like Barbie could ever happen again. Cause we're already seeing, you know, the announcement of the Mattel cinematic universe. So it's making me wonder, like, you know, this might just be a perfect storm of a once in a lifetime artistic achievement that I, I don't know if we're going to see something oh, like this. God. Yeah. <laughs> the cynical cash grabs that are going to come from it though. Oh, yeah. might might make us see Barbie in a different light like 10 years from oh, now. Because no, you're right. Like the same way like, Dark Knight made a bunch of bad uh, yeah. impersonators. Yeah, Greta Gerwig, I, w- I would say, is unlikely to be involved in them, but you know there's going to be like at least three Barbie movies. Oh. And other Mattel properties or other... Like, you, like I, I mean, I'm so cynical that I think that you know, the next step, like there's this beautiful organic moment with Barbenheimer. So how are these studios going to get together to try to, to manufacture something? They're going to pump it in an algorithm and try and keep doing this every year. Oh yeah. Like, like maybe like every year, by like three years from now, there's going to be like this big epic, like John F. Kennedy Jr. Biopic. That's going to be paired with like a, my little pony movie. Yeah. No, no, that that's almost exactly what I was. It was like some like, troubling american figure getting a reevaluation and then some beloved children's ip that we all loved getting an adult retrospective just slapped together yeah. cynically over and over amen yeah so we're gonna get like the nelson mandela biopic <laughs> i'm thinking then, that uh and like the slinky movie <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually they're gonna start doing crossovers where it's like Malcolm X uses or uses hot wheels to go to africa and like fight for the revolution or something yeah 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 um oh here, here's a question that that you you pose and we didn't actually answer is uh what what oh can you think of a movie that's like a f- kind of frankenstein mashup like that lies kind of betwixt these two movies there is a movie it does exist and i've consulted friends with this and uh we have put our heads together and we have uh produced the correct answer the producers that is a, that is the the combination of the two because it it concerns Nazis, Nazis in like, theater, uh, Nazis in theater. Okay, <laughs> I like that. But like thematically, uh, gonna... it does kind of do the same thing. It's got this like self-referential understanding. It's kind of got a postmodern sensibility. It's looking back at American history and reevaluating it. Um, yeah, producers. That's what I'm landing on. Uh, I'm gonna pick like a, a movie that I pick very often, <laughs> uh, and will he'll hear me discuss uh, ad nauseum on concessions and that is mad max fury road which uh is uh to me a far more persuasive 
treatise on uh, the idea of what it would look like if um, the feminine squashed the patriarchy mm. and uh, all wrapped up in a you know post-nuclear war. You know, this is the this is what happens because of Oppenheimer's creation. Oh. Um, it leads to Mad Max in an actual sequel. And uh, yeah, it's like kind of like it's like it's, it is kind of an idea of like, hey, what would Barbie Land look like? Uh, you know, post-apocalypse. Yeah, what would happen if the yeah, the Kens actually did a January six? Yeah, and uh, and you know, what would it look like for the women to finally take it back and and start to right those wrongs? Um, is Mad Max Fury Road, which uh, you know, from this you know middle class cis white male perspective, uh, <laughs> is like the movie about feminism uh, for me. And 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 one that manages to take those complex issues and wrap it up in a very fun package. Um, and has cool music yeah. too, like Barbie. Yeah, and a cool car chase like Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we watching next week? We are uh, going with another new spook uh, that one of us has watched. That one of us got to do a cool sneak preview. That one of us has not watched that they're going to get the pants scared off them in the near future because they are easily scared, but they love scary movies. Uh, it is called Talk to Me. It is a new A24, A24, A24 yeah. uh, film that is coming out, which, you know, they are notorious for original horror films that, uh, that really make a splash. I've only heard good things so far. Um, Jared, you've seen it. Do you want to give any sort of a preview or do you want to uh, leave it be? Yeah. Well, so when I hear like a 24 movie, I think of like the quote unquote elevated horror of the, <laughs> of the 2010s and beyond where this is, you know, my critique of a 24 when it comes to horror films is they are constantly marketing movies as like, this is the scariest movie. This is this generation's exorcist. This movie's going to kill you literally. <laughs> um, and then you watch it and it's like, a drama with some slight horror elements. Um, like sad and, Icelandic uh, people. Yeah. Raising a lamb. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. Um, talk to me is kind of getting this reputation as like, uh, the real deal as far as like, a this will wig you out. This will chew you up and spit you out. This is scary, uh, type of movie. And it, it, it is that. It's being marketed that way, and 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 it actually is. Hell yeah! Um, yeah, this is this is this is Gen Z's Exorcist, and um, yeah, no, it's uh, I'm I'm very excited to to dive really deeply into it. Um, yeah, I've seen it once. I'm seeing it two more times because I've got like multiple friend groups who want to see it with me <laughs> uh, this weekend. So I'm going to see it Friday night and Saturday night. Um, and uh, I'll be very, very ready with some notes for next week. Sweet. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the, uh, the rip the bandaid off this weekend and get my initial trauma. Ah, oh, love it. Well, for concessions, I'm Jared, and I'm Dan, and next we will beat you off next week. Uh, what did Stanley Kubrick have loved his magnum opus being used <laughs> to sell dolls? <laughs> Gotta love it. 